0: As the sun dips below the horizon, painting the South Carolina sky with twilight hues, a sense of anticipation fills the air. The scent of the magnolia blossoms mingle with the faint echo of a harmonica as we gather around an age-old fire pit, our faces flickering in its dancing light. It's time to dive into a realm where shadows come alive with yesteryear tales. Today, we traverse the blurred lines of reality and folklore, exploring the eerie legend of Lavinia Fisher and the spectral mystery of the Gray Man. The whispers of these tales are not just mere echoes from a forgotten past, but gateways that lead us to a world where truth and myth pirouette on the precipice of understanding. I like to use fancy words every now and again. just makes me feel alive. With each step we take, remember, every tale carries a weight, and every legend has a heartbeat. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the ghost stories and folklore that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Legend has long held that Lavinia Fisher, born in 1793, was the first widely recognized female serial killer in the United States. However, information about her birth location, maiden name, and childhood remains a mystery. While historical records do not fully align with the legend surrounding her, Fisher was indeed hanged for her crimes. Lavinia married John Fisher and resided near Charleston, South Carolina together. Their livelihood came from managing a hotel called the Six Mile Wayfarer House in the early 1800s. Curiously, men who visited Charleston began to vanish without a trace. As more reports of missing men flooded the authorities, it became clear that they were last seen at the Six Mile Wayfarer House, named for its location six miles outside of Charleston. Local authorities initiated an investigation, but lacking evidence implicating the Fishers, and due to their popularity within the community, the case was eventually dropped. Lavinia Fisher was renowned for her beauty and charm, further contributing to the popularity and success of their hotel. However, it would later be discovered that she exploited these attributes to assist her husband in robbing and murdering numerous male travelers. And as more men disappeared, Rumors began to circulate. Now, in response to the growing concern, a group of vigilantes assembled and confronted the Fishers in February of 1819. While the exact details of their encounter remain unknown, they deemed their mission accomplished, leaving a man named David Ross behind to keep an eye on the Fishers. Ross was eventually accosted by two men, who brought him before a group, who was led by Lavinia Fisher the following day. Ross knew he was in trouble, and he was desperate for help. He looked for anybody to help him, even looked to Lavinia, not believing that the woman was the most merciless one of the whole group. But she swiftly put that to bed when she choked him and smashed his head through a window. Miraculously, Ross managed to escape, and he alerted authorities. Around the same time, John Peoples journeyed from Georgia to Charleston and sought a room at the Six Mile House after a long trip. Lavinia warmly greeted him and regretfully informed him of their lack of vacancies, but kindly invited him in for tea and a meal. Peoples found her company delightful, disregarding the odd glances from Lavinia's husband throughout their conversation. Obliging her inquiries, he answered each question openly. When she briefly left the table, she returned with tea and surprising news. You know what? A room had suddenly just become available if John was still interested. He was so grateful. He accepted and Lavinia poured him a cup of tea. John did not particularly enjoy the tea, yet he did not wish to appear impolite. Instead of refusing or leaving it untouched, he discreetly poured it out when Lavinia wasn't looking. She then showed him to his room. However, unease settled within John as he pondered why she had asked so many personal questions and why her husband had stared at him like that all evening. Suddenly feeling vulnerable to potential robbery, John opted to stay in the chair by the door rather than the bed. He dozed off until a loud noise jolted him awake. To his horror, he realized that the bed where he would have been sleeping had vanished, swallowed up by a deep hole beneath the floorboards. Acting swiftly, John leaped out the window, mounted his horse, and raced to the authorities in Charleston to report the incident. Consequently, John and Lavinia Fisher, along with their two accomplices, were arrested by police. The six-mile Wayfarer house underwent an extensive search, unearthing hidden passengers and revealing items linked to numerous travelers. Among these discovery was a sleep-inducing herb-laced tea, a mechanism that triggered the opening of floorboards beneath a bed and in the basement, possibly up to a hundred sets of remains. The Fishers pleaded not guilty, but were held in jail until their trial. Meanwhile, their co-conspirators were released on bail. During the trial, the jury rejected their plea of innocence, finding them guilty of multiple robberies and murders and sentenced them to hang though they were granted time to appeal the conviction. While awaiting their fate, the couple devised an escape plan. Housed in a jail with relatively lax security measures, they began fashioning a rope from linens. On September 13th, they implemented their plan, using the rope to descend to the ground. John successfully escaped, but the rope snapped, leaving Lavinia trapped in her cell. Refusing to abandon his wife, John returned to the jail. From that point forward, both were subjected to heightened security measures. In February of 1820, their appeal was rejected by the Constitutional Court, and their execution was scheduled for later that month. Reverend Richard Furman was appointed to counsel them if they wished. John openly conversed with Furman, pleading for the salvation of his soul, if not his life. Lavinia, however, scornfully rejected any assistance from the minister. On the morning of February 18th, 1820, the Fishers were taken from Charleston jail to be hanged on the gallows behind the building. John Fisher calmly prayed with the minister and requested that a letter be read out loud. Addressing approximately 2,000 people, the letter asserted his innocence. It implored for mercy toward those who had wronged him throughout the judicial process. He then began to plead his case verbally, but ultimately asked for forgiveness before his execution. Lavinia, on the other hand, did not go quietly. Insisting on wearing her wedding dress, she resisted walking to the gallows and had to be carried as she ranted and raved. Before the assembled crowd, she directed her screams specifically at Charleston's social elite, blaming them for encouraging her conviction. Just before her executioners could tighten the noose around her neck, she defiantly called out to the crowd, offering to carry any messages they wished to send to hell. In a shocking turn, she flung herself off the scaffold, narrowly missing the ground, and instead just dangled amidst the onlookers. Witnesses later spoke of the chilling sneer and wicked stare etched upon the 27-year-old Lavinia's face. Now, there are stories of Lavinia haunting the Unitarian Church graveyard, but contrary to popular belief, she is unlikely to be buried there. At that time, a potter's field cemetery next to the jail served as a burial ground for criminals whose bodies were unclaimed by their families. The Fishers had no family to speak of, so that adds up. Additionally, there is no evidence in the church's records to suggest Lavinia's burial in that location. This tale has probably been perpetrated by tour guides and embellished over time. Historical records do not support claims of hundreds of remains discovered in the Fishers' basements also. While a few bodies were unearthed on the property, there was insufficient evidence to definitively link them to the Fishers. Furthermore, they were never formally charged with murder, according to the available records, that is. So while Lavinia Fisher is often touted as the first female serial killer in the United States, This distinction more likely belongs to Jane Topan, who confessed to 31 murders in 1901, but was found not guilty because of insanity. It is definitely undisputed that the Fishers engaged in numerous robberies, a crime which was punishable by hanging, so their fate adds up. The circumstances surrounding Lavinia's attire at her execution and whether she jumped from the scaffold herself are also subject to question. Sometimes, legends prove more captivating than reality, and this particular tale has endured as part of Charleston's lore. From the pages of the Charleston Courier, February 22, 1819. In Saturday's Courier, we provided details about a group of outlaws who had long plagued the road near our city, their outrageous conduct becoming intolerable we reported that the occupants of a small house five miles from town had been driven out of their dwelling set ablaze. In contrast, specific individuals at a house one mile farther were forced to vacate and replace by another person. Subsequently, these individuals returned to the second house in the evening after the citizens were born in town. They brutally assaulted the newly appointed resident, who managed to escape into the woods and find his way back to town. The following morning, the same gang accosted the traveler on the road, subjecting him to a severe beating and robbing him of approximately $30 or $40. These incidents were brought to the authorities' attention, prompting the district sheriff to gather a handful of citizens and proceed to the scene on Saturday afternoon. They surrounded the house, apprehended its occupants, three men and two women, and subsequently burned both house and its outer buildings denying the occupants an opportunity to remove any belongings. The offenders were then brought to town and committed to jail. During their search, the posse discovered a freshly slaughtered cowhide in the outhouse identified as belonging to one of our citizens who had reported it missing for several days. This explains how stolen cows frequently vanished without a trace. The house residents were armed with 10 or 12 muskets and possessed a powder keg. Still the force assembled against them was too formidable for any resort to arms. One of the leaders of these flagrant depredations was arrested in the town on Saturday afternoon and committed to jail as well. We trust that these decisive actions will restore tranquility to the neighborhood and enable our fellow countrymen to come and go without fear of insult or robbery. The following is an accurate list of those apprehended and committed to prison on Saturday night. John Fisher, Lavinia Fisher, his wife, William Hayward, James Melway, Jane Howard, and Seth Young. It is believed that several others are still at large, and we hope that the vigilance of the police and citizens will apprehend them and bring them to justice. We have been informed and requested to mention that Mr. John People, who was robbed and brutally beaten by the villains as mentioned earlier, is an honest young man from the country who had entrusted him with a sum of money that was taken from him by the robbers. I really wish that newspapers were still written like this today. If newspapers were still written like that, I think their circulation would be a lot higher. That was just great. Unsurprisingly, given the dark history surrounding Lavinia Fisher, reports of her ghostly presence still persist in Charleston. Shortly after her death, locals began reporting sightings of her face peering through the window bars of her former cell. Following the great earthquake of 1886, sightings expanded to other parts of the neighborhood and even the Unitarian Cemetery a few blocks away. The old jail building served as Charleston County Jail from its construction in 1802 until 1939. The four-acre square of land it stands on was initially designated for public use during the city's establishment in 1680. Over time, it housed a hospital, a poorhouse, a workhouse for runaway slaves, and a jail. The first structures were erected in 1738 when the property served as a workhouse for escaped slaves and a makeshift hospital for paupers and vagrants. Criminals were also held here before the old jail was built, though they were kept separate from the non-offenders. Punishments and executions occurred on site, with criminals enduring whippings, brandings, torture, and deprivation of food and water. Horse thieves often had their ears nailed to posts before being severed completely. The most heinous offenders faced burning at the stake, hanging, or even being drawn and quartered. The site saw numerous demolitions and reconstructions throughout its history. The jail was constructed in 1802, featuring four stories topped by a two-story octagonal tower. Subsequent modifications, including the addition of an octagonal rear wing exposing to the main building and Romanesque revival details. However, the earthquake of 1886 severely damaged the tower on the top floor of the main building, necessitating their removal. Over its 137 years of operation, the building functioned as a jail and an asylum, housing countless inmates, including John and Lavinia Fisher. In the early 1800s, it held many high sea pirates. After Denmark Vesey's planned slave revolt in 1822, hundreds of incarcerated individuals awaited trial. Vessi, a freed slave, had orchestrated a rebellion that involved free blacks assisting slaves in killing their owners and seizing control of Charleston temporarily before fleeing to Haiti. Unfortunately for Vessi, the plot was discovered, resulting in the arrest of hundreds of individuals involved. Of the 67 men convicted, 35 were hanged, including Vessi himself. Stricter regulations were subsequently imposed on slaves and free blacks, such as a law requiring black seamen to remain in jail while in port. Confederate and federal prisoners of war were also held here during the Civil War. Although designed to accommodate approximately 128 prisoners, the jail often housed up to 300 individuals simultaneously. Some inmates were confined to cages, barely large enough to contain their bodies. Disease, torture, and violence ran rampant within these historic walls leading to an estimated death toll of 10,000 individuals during its operation. The jail finally closed in 1939 and remained abandoned for six decades. However, in 2000, the American College of the Building Arts acquired the Old City Jail and launched a stabilization program. Today, it is an official Save America's Treasure project of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, with ongoing efforts to restore the main building. Reports of strange occurrences began during the restoration efforts in 2000. Workers discovered footprints in the dust, despite the building being locked off for months due to lead paint contamination. And the strange anomalies increased as preservation continued and the building opened for tours. Numerous apparitions have been cited, including a jailer carrying a rifle on the third floor. Witnesses claim this phantom passes through the bars, moving towards them before vanishing. Others report seeing a disheveled black man wandering the halls, seemingly unaware of his surroundings or the living. However, Lavinia Fisher is the most infamous ghost associated with the old jail. Many visitors have witnessed her spirit donning a red and white wedding dress. Eerie sounds echo throughout the building, such as the hum of a defunct dumbwaiter moving between floors. Alarms are known to sound sporadically, some individuals have described experiencing experience a choking sensation and shortness of breath while on the main staircase. Others report being touched, pushed, grabbed, or scratched by unseen forces. One tour guide recounts feeling a rope coil around her ankle. At the same time, a man in the basement had his sunglasses knocked off by an aggressive, invisible entity. There are other peculiar happenings that include foul odors so overpowering that they induce nausea and an overwhelming sense of being watched. Despite warm temperatures in the basement, visitors have witnessed their breath materialize in foggy clouds, and doors mysteriously open after being closed. Access to the jail is limited, primarily available through various tour companies in Charleston. The Old City Jail can be found at 21 Magazine and 17 Franklin Streets. There are also tales of Lavinia haunting the Unitarian Cemetery, where some sources claim that she was buried. However, it is doubtful that given the existence of a Pottersfield Cemetery adjacent to the jail at the time, that that's probably not true. Criminals whose bodies were unclaimed by family members were typically buried there, and like I said earlier, searches through church records have revealed no evidence of Lavinia's burial in the cemetery. But your tour guides in the area insist on it. In the 2012 season premiere of the Ghost Hunters television show it featured an investigation at the old Charleston jail. In the episode a skeptical camera operator experienced scratches, which were visibly captured on camera. So if you choose to visit, tread lightly. Hey folks, I just wanted to give a quick little update about what's coming with the show. We are approaching the end of the states, and I've gotten so many emails and messages and comments on Spotify about, hey, you talked about my hometown, but you didn't mention this story, and this story, and this story. That's the great thing about folklore and stories like this, that there seemingly is never an end to them. And just because I covered the state and only spoke about one or two stories doesn't mean I'm not going to revisit them. So going forward, once I'm done, once I finish going through the 50 states, like I said, I'm going to probably head overseas for a little while and start doing some worldly folklore and European folklore. But I'm also going to be coming back and revisiting some of the old states. So I'm thinking about a way to do it if if I'm doing just normal kind of folklore episodes from various countries around the world, maybe once a month. I'll throw in a bonus episode of a new state. And maybe I'll start over again. Start back from the beginning. Start back from the A's. And do things that I didn't talk about in the original episodes. So, yeah, that's the plan right now. If anybody has any suggestions for anything better, I'm all ears. But, yeah, that's just what I wanted to give you guys. A brief little update on what's happening. Um, I mentioned last week that the show is now available on YouTube. And the YouTube videos are coming at the time of recording this. It's not uploaded yet, but by the time it's posted, it might be. So either it's there or it's not. At this point, your guess is as good as mine. All right, folks. It's been uh, been a lot of fun. I don't know why I'm talking like I'm saying goodbye forever. If I'm not. I'm just saying goodbye right now. Interesting. You make interesting choices when you speak, Chris. All right, let's continue with South Carolina. Later. As the sun sinks low over Pawleys Island, South Carolina, casting long shadows over the antebellum attractions and historic homes, the air fills with a sense of restless anticipation. The locals, seasoned by the rhythms of this quaint coastal haven, stop their evening chatter and cast wary glances toward the serene marshlands, that lay untouched, stretching out into the twilight. In the distance, the Grand Palms Resort stands as a beacon of opulence, oblivious to the ancient secrets whispered by the wind through its grandiose palms. But it's not the encroaching darkness that sends a shiver down their spines. It's the figure that haunts their paradise, a ghostly presence whose appearance signals a time to flee. And just as the last rays of sunlight fade from sight, a spectral silhouette emerges on the horizon, marking the beginning of a timeless dance between delight and dread. The Gray Man, as he is famously known, stands as a centerpiece of this tiny community's folklore. Whispers of his presence have echoed through time, intertwining with the winds that sweep across this island. According to the countless documented accounts spanning centuries, this spectral figure materializes on Pauley's island's sandy shores before impending hurricanes. It is said that those fortunate enough to have encountered him receive a chilling warning, a silent plea to evacuate the island before nature unleashes its wrath upon the fragile coastal haven. Jim and Clara Moore, A couple who experienced such an encounter firsthand vividly recount their eerie brush with the Gray Man just two days before Hurricane Hugo's devastating arrival. We were strolling along the beach late in the afternoon, as we often do, Jim reminisces during an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Normally, you would spot many folks enjoying their leisurely walks at that hour, but on that particular afternoon, only one figure was at sight, steadily approaching us. As he drew nearer, I raised my hand to offer a friendly greeting or perhaps remark on the beautiful evening. But in the blink of an eye, he vanished into thin air. Hurricane Hugo ravaged Jim and Clara's neighborhood, leaving destruction in its wake. Yet miraculously, their home emerged unscathed. Clara attributes their miraculous fortune to the Grey Man's warning and a higher power guiding their steps. Accounts of encounters with the Gray Man may vary, but most descriptions paint a picture of a figure garbed entirely in shades of gray. The ethereal specter frequently materializes on the beach, emerging from the dunes that guard the island, or beckoning to passing boaters from the shore, before unexplainably dissolving into the sea breeze. While most sightings occur within the confines of Pauli's Island, Rumors persist that this figure possesses an uncanny ability to traverse great distances. One intrepid fisherman claims to have glimpsed the gray man in Mural's Inlet, a coastal town situated approximately 10 miles north of Pauley's Island. I had spent nearly an entire day out of my boat, with the sun beginning to descend toward the horizon, he recounts with a mixture of awe and trepidation. Just as I was preparing for one final sweep of the inlet in search of oysters, I caught a sight of a lone figure standing on the shore. At first, I thought he was waving me closer, but as my boat drew nearer, I realized his hand was extended as if imploring me to halt. Clad entirely in gray, but bearing the appearance of an ancient seafarer, I could scarcely believe my eyes. I rubbed them in disbelief, only to find that he had vanished without a trace. Hours later, a storm descended upon the inlet unleashing its fury with relentless winds and torrential rain. The fisherman remains convinced that the gray man's apparition steered him away from eminent danger, ensuring his safe return to dry land. As the gray man continues his vigil along the windswept shores of Pauley's Island and beyond, one question lingers in the minds of those captivated by his spectral presence. What compels this benevolent spirit to offer an advance warning of impending peril? Countless tales patched together the possible origins of the Grey Man. According to one legend, a young woman roamed the desolate windswept beach near her childhood home on Pauly's Island. Consumed by grief over the untimely demise of her beloved fiancé in a tragic accident on the island, she found solace in wandering the very sands they once traversed hand in hand. Her heartache deepened as she learned that her betrothed had returned to Georgetown aboard a ship after a prolonged absence. Driven by an overwhelming desire to be reunited with her cherished love, he chose to navigate an uncharted path across treacherous marshland, eager to embrace his beloved without delay. With his loyal manservant trailing just a short distance behind, the young man and his steed suddenly found themselves ensnared in a deadly quicksand trap. The servant watched in abject horror, perilous to rescue his master as they both sank into the unforgiving mire. News of her fiancé's tragic demise shattered the young woman's soul. In her grief-stricken state, she sought solace in daily walks along the stretch of shoreline that had once bore witness to their unbridled joy. On this particular day, the wind howled with an intensity that mirrored her inner turmoil, and the crashing waves served as a somber symphony to her sorrow. Out of nowhere, a figure materialized before her eyes. As she drew closer, her heart skipped a beat the figure bore an uncanny resemblance to her lost love. Unfazed by fear, she pressed forward, her steps guided by an unexplainable sense of familiarity. Leave the island at once, he spoke with a sense of urgency. You are in grave danger, leave this island. And just as suddenly as he had appeared, he vanished into the salty air, leaving the young woman breathless and bewildered. Without hesitation, she raced home to relay the unsettling encounter she had to her parents. Struck by the gravity of their daughter's tale, they wasted no time in preparing to abandon Pauly's Island for the safety of their inland abode. They knew not the nature of the impending peril they fled, but they trusted their daughter's sensible nature and steadfast commitment to truth. As they departed in the pre-dawn hours of the following morning, little did they know that a tempest with such ferocity would soon lay siege to their beloved island. The hurricane unleashed its fury upon Pauly's Island, reducing homes to rubble and leaving devastation in its wake. Yet, amidst the chaos and destruction, the family's cherished dwelling remained unscathed, a testament to the gray man's otherworldly intervention. The identity of the gray man may forever remain shrouded in mystery, his true nature a riddle that defies explanation. However, one undeniable truth prevails. The presence of this spectral guardian offers solace and protection to those who call South Carolina's Grand Strand home. And there we have it. Another chapter in the United States folklore comes to a close. Lavinia Fisher and the Gray Man, two specters of the past that continue to cast their shadows over the Lowcountry. As I conclude my current exploration into South Carolina, let us remember that every tale has a grain of truth and a touch of the unknown. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, these legends have left a mark on the cultural landscape, reminding us that fact is often stranger than the fiction. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin MacLeod.